All right, let's start something new tonight. Let's start talking about parables. Um, parables are, are, are really common inside of the scriptures because, um, because there's no meaning to them. I hate to say it this way because it doesn't sound like it's kind. But when we deal with parables by and large, a lot of times we sort of grab them like they're Aesop's fables. And so, like, they're a common teaching where you can look at things that are very relatable to you and take a moral teaching away from it. And then you write in your moral teaching, which is why um, if... Democrats and Republicans were going to argue about something. They grab a parable. They each say the same parable, but for some reason, the other side's going to hell no matter who's telling it. What's going on? Well, that's the danger of the parable is that it's wide open. There's, I mean, there's no, nothing but a spin. Um, when we talk about parables, there actually is a right way to, first of all, understand what a parable is, and second of all, a right way to start to dissect one. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So we're going to start with an easy one where Jesus actually gives us the answer. Because if he gives us the answer, how far off base can we actually get? And so from there, we'll, we'll kind of work backwards. I want to go tonight uh, to the Gospel of uh, Luke, chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. Luke, chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. This is given so that we can start to figure out how to deal with parables. Luke, chapter 8. Verses 4 to 15, it reads, And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to Jesus, he sat in a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell on the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell on good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he, called these things, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the one on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell in the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit is not mature. And as for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so... um. One of the things that we, we sort of butt up against when we deal with parables is that they're weird. And we need to learn how to embrace that. Um, one of the reasons that this, this sort of goes off kilter when we start to imagine that it's just sort of a vague moral teaching is that we have to imagine that Jesus doesn't always know what he's talking about. Um, sort of, I'm serious. Like, it's sort of like when, when Pastor Goodman wants to preach a good farming sermon and he doesn't actually know what he's talking about, but he really wants to try real hard to relate. And so he'll say, you know, when you're combining the corn, don't look back. Which is kind of in the Bible, but the problem is you have to look back to do the combine. Um, you have to assume that Jesus doesn't actually know how the real world works. Because every time you deal with a parable, you come across something that just typically doesn't work that way. How many intentionally throw seed on the road? Like, Jesus is a terrible farmer. 
Either he has no idea what he's talking about, or maybe there's something more than just sort of a vague moral teaching to pick up. Um, when we talk about parables, what we need to understand first is what they are, and second, who they're to. First, a parable describes the kingdom of God in action. A parable is about what God is doing, not what we are doing. It's talking about God's kingdom. God doesn't really need to teach us what we're doing. We already tend to know. And when he wants to talk about what we're doing, he already has a decalogue for that, which is really, really good. You know how to behave? What do you look to? Ten Commandments. How should you behave towards your wife? Well, don't commit adultery. It's laid out there very specifically. Um, inside of the parable, though, we have meaning upon meaning. It's sort of heaped up so that the more you pick at it, the more you can find. So the question is, are parables literal? This is, hang on before you answer it. Just chew on that for a while. Because we can say, all right, it's just a story. It's just a, a moral. It's, it's talking about something else. But let's, let's hold off whether or not we decide parables are literal. Um, what we can say, are parables mysterious? Is there hidden meaning within them? Right. First of all, he has to explain it. Um... But, but second of all, just that he's telling a story is, is already talking about the fact that there's something more going on here that meets the eye. If Jesus just wanted to get a point across, he would tell you a point. And so, for example, when he wants to explain the Lord's Supper, which is a mystery, it's called a mysterion, does he tell you a story so that you might understand the Lord's Supper? Or does he just say, take it, eat it, it's my body and it forgives your sins? He just flat out tells you. He does. When he relates to the Pharisees in their unbelief, does he beat around the bush? Let's go like Matthew 23 is, is helpful. This is the You're a Hypocrite chapter. Matthew 23, towards uh, the end there. I'm going to start at verse 27. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Is he beating around the bush, telling them a story so they can figure it out in their own time and place? He's telling them the truth. When there's a mystery, what are we supposed to do with it? Kind of. There we go. Have we talked about the difference between a secret and a mystery? What's the difference between a secret and a mystery? Yeah, it stops being a secret once you know it, right? So if you hear people whispering and you're convinced it's about you because you have social anxiety like me, um, and you walk by, you ask, what are you talking about? And then when you find out that it's just a dog that walked by, you're, you're cool. It's not me. It's no more secret. A mystery. It's something that even when you know the answer, you still can't get your head all the way around it. And so I can tell you, the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Jesus that were shed upon the cross for you to eat and drink in with and under bread and wine. Do you understand how that works? Do you know it? The more you chew on it, the deeper it goes. Literally, um, I suppose, because it's supper. Um, but a mystery is actually something that you keep going back to. Whereas a secret, once it's out, it's out. How many of you guys reread mystery novels? 
Those aren't real mysteries. Those are secrets. Once you already know, it's less exciting. You can read it again because you don't want to buy a new book. But, but once you read it again, it's less exciting, which is why if I ruin it for you, you're mad at me. Um, I'm serious. <laughs> so there is meaning inside of the parable that's buried under mystery that we might keep going back to it over and over and over again. This is a teaching tool then. Are you with me so far? Because if he just wanted you to know what it is flat out, he tells you flat out. This is Jesus who has said the kingdom of God is, is here, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. That, that was John the Baptist, but Jesus echoed it. Um, forgive me. Um, but when it's called a parable too, um, when it's called a parable too, it's not for everybody. We like to sort of say that the parables are like Aesop's fables, and so they're a great way to introduce somebody to the faith. Um, but what's the problem? You're shaking your head, no, don't do this thing. How come? You said it's for believers, but I thought the Bible is for everyone. The Bible is for everyone. The gospel. The gospel's for everyone. The law's for everyone. Okay. No. I don't, I don't start out with kindergarten. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't start out with stuff I'm going to get in high school. All right. I don't start out with algebra one. You build up to it. You build up to it. And I would say that a parable is something that you build up for because Jesus tells the disciples it's not correct. I can get down with that. All right. I can get down with that. So, um... Can I step back before I, I, I rush at that? How do you know it's a parable? What is a parable? All right, it's a story that Jesus uses to teach us something. So sometimes he says this is a parable. He spoke to them a parable. Sometimes he speaks an allegory. When we, when we have parables, sometimes he just flat out calls it a parable. Sometimes he doesn't. And so we'll say the kingdom of heaven is like. So he'll use generalizations. He'll use characters, usually nameless characters. I think there's only one parable where a guy has a name. Um, by and large, it's weird. By and large, there's at least one thing in the world that, that doesn't work that way in real life the way it does in the parable. So in this one, what's weird about the man who went out to throw the seed on literally everything? Right, that stuff's expensive. Why are you throwing it on the... Like, I understand you'll spill some, but what farmer, when they're planting, literally just opens up the planter on the road out to the field? Right, still. He, he spread the seed. He didn't drop the seed. He threw it on the rocks. He threw it on the thorns. He threw it on the road. And he threw it on the good soil. He spread the seed, didn't he? Right. So you're saying then this, the, the spreading of God's word should be accidental in nature? No. Okay. 
That's my question. Um, because again, this isn't how farming's supposed to go. This guy's just, like this is the guy who has more accidental corn than soybeans in his field, right? This isn't how it's supposed to work. Um, to, to actually speak of it um, as, as he did, he relates it right to the kingdom of God, doesn't he? All right, so is this kingdom of God spread incidentally or intentionally by God? It's quite intentional. I'm going to say if the, the, the God who spread the seed wanted it there, it would have gone there. And if he didn't want it there, it wouldn't have gone there. Um, this is just sloppy stuff. It, it, it truly is. Um, Sower went out to sow a seed, and he just gets it everywhere. That's not how it works. You can go to a whole bunch of others, and, and we will. But this is one of the ways you identify a parable. Is you can poke a hole in it because you say, I would not do this thing. Any sane person would not do this thing. Which of you having 99 sheep would leave them all alone, undefended, so you can go look for one? Cut your losses. A parable is weird. This is what I mean. There's something here that goes on. Um, the Bible verse that would help us understand this is in Isaiah. It's Isaiah, oh, what is it? Is it six? No. Let's try it. Isaiah 6. Is that it? No, it's not that. Um, Isaiah 55, verse 8. Sorry. Isaiah 55, verse 8. Hear the Lord. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So, when God does things, does he do things in ways that make sense to us? My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. So when God does stuff, if the, the parables are about God, you're going to find something that doesn't fit with how we would do things. Why is that? Well, because God's doing them, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. If it's a parable about God, then you're going to find right away a place where I would say, I would do that thing differently. If it's a parable about us and how to behave, it would make perfect sense. I can find a God who will leave and go after the stray because he does it in a different way than I would have to. I can find a God who sows seed recklessly where I, in my, my, well, just the finite amount of seed I have would be a lot more careful. If God's thoughts and God's ways are not like our thoughts and our ways, one of the ways that you'll come across a parable right away is you'll, you'll read it and you'll say, now hang on, I'm just not sure this would actually happen in real life. Are you kind of with me here? Questions on this? All right. So why does he do this? Because he says it in a way, not just I want them to really think about it. Because that's not what he, he says. In uh, Luke 8, um, 9 and 10, he says something that nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to deal with. Luke chapter 8, 9 and 10 from our text. When his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, there are parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. The parables aren't there to teach some, they're there to confuse others. What's going on? 
So here's the thing. And we're about to come up with our first rule of parables. Don't contradict scripture so that you can tell yourself a story. If your explanation of the parable goes against what you're told in the rest of scripture, you're doing the parable wrong. Fair enough? So, like, did God want Pharaoh to be damned? No. For over and over again, he says, I have no desire in the death of the wicked. We'll come back to that, too. Because it's important for this part. If you're working with a parable, go back to what you already know. Don't write over what you already know to tell yourself a story. Are you with me? Questions? Can I give you the answer? Awesome. Let's go back to Isaiah. It is Isaiah 6 now. Isaiah 6, uh, 1 to 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of the robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burn coal that he had taken from the tongs with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And this is where we always stop reading, isn't it? Like, that's fantastic. That's a perfect place to stop, because it's right before anything weird happens. And I can say, all right, I understand. To be near God, I have to be holy. He makes us holy. He takes away our sins. Now, who should go on mission trips? Here am I, send me. Except... Then Isaiah gets told to say weird stuff. Keep reading. And this is, there's a reason I wonder if maybe everybody who wants to use this text at an ordination stops right here. Every time we, we get out the LWML verses, we, we stop before this, this comes out. And I'll never let you do it. We always have to look at them. So this is what God says. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and the house is without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes the people far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in its stump. Good news, right? What? That's what you brought me here to do, right? Make sure that everything looks burned up. Go and preach so that nobody understands and nobody sees. Preach until the whole thing falls desolate. That's what it says. Close. Getting there. You have to have law before you have gospel. That's true. Um, that is true. They were, if they were in the middle of, like, ignoring God and doing everything against his will, they're not going to... Just stop. They're not going to stop. They're not going to do what it needs to be done. They're not going to turn back to God. Right. We had a, a lawless people, right? Right. Right. So... 
They had a lawless people who wanted nothing to do with God's word and law, which is why he spoke so kindly to the Pharisees all the time, right? Who very much outwardly claimed to love the Lord and outwardly did try their very best to follow the commandments. Yeah. They were... And calling them a hypocrite. Really right, right. So this is the thing. Um, the Bible isn't just law than gospel. It, it, that's how we, we start to go through it. But we have to understand that the Bible is, is about something in particular. It's about Jesus, right? This is uh, John 5, 39. Yeah, John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, and I tell you the truth, these things testify of me. The law and the gospel are about what? They're about Jesus. The law is not about you and the gospel about Jesus. The law is about Jesus too. The whole thing is about Jesus. If you want to do this thing apart from Jesus, how's it going to go? Bad, honey. It's going to go bad. Huh? It's going to go bad. Um, when we talk about this then, um, we have to acknowledge that you can't just sort of grab this book, start reading, and then expect to sort of come to all the right conclusions. The devil himself can quote this book. Better than you, better than me. There are atheists who know the book better than me. I'm not proud of that one. Um, they haven't had as much time. I should, I should be better at this. Um, but the Pharisees, too, were real good at the scriptures. Jesus said, if you're not finding me in this, you're doing it wrong. When Isaiah sent out, he sent out so that everything would fall and everything would get burned up. And in the stump, that fallen stump of Jesse would be what? The holy, the holy seed. What's the holy seed that comes from the stump of Jesse? Do you know this one? Well, it's Jesus. So of Jesse's line comes then the shoot that is Jesus, born of son of David, right? Everything that's not Jesus has to fall away. Everything that's not Jesus has to get burned up. Send preachers out to show just how terrible everything else will go. And you can call that law. I mean, I guess. That's true. Um, but ultimately then, it, it, it's make sure there's nothing but Jesus left. Because that's the only thing that will save. And Jesus did this a handful of times. So he would say, you know, you can have God or money. Which one? Only one saves. And so this is where we come to that it's easier for a rich man or uh, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Is it just that Jesus hates rich people? No. It's that at the end of the day, if you're putting your trust in money, well, you've already got your trust in something. It's harder to recognize that money comes and money goes. But God endures. The parables, they're not given to introduce people to the faith. They're given to frustrate people who would use them as shortcuts. And they're really good at it. You watch it honestly today in, in politics, when both sides throw the same parable at each other. And the only thing anybody gets is frustrated. This is not given to introduce people to the faith. This is also not given to teach how the world ought to work. This is given to teach about Jesus. And anything else, anything else, you're going to end up in a weird place. Because the parables by their nature are not how the world works. When you try and run them this way, just 
completely apart from God, you have people doing weird things. You genuinely do. Unprofitable things and sometimes things that, that border on sin. Jesus is at the center. And so whenever you do a parable, first of all, if you don't find Jesus in it, you're doing it wrong. If it's not about Jesus, you're doing it wrong. If you think it's about you, you're doing it wrong. Take a step back and look for God. So what kind of rules do we have with parables so far? One, find the weird thing. Or if he just calls it a parable, you know you got a parable. Two, don't contradict scripture. If to tell yourself that you understand this parable, you have to cross over and cross out Bible verses so that you can make this thing make sense, you're probably doing it wrong. And three, just like the rest of the time, if you're making this about yourself instead of about your God for you, you're doing it wrong. Um, are you kind of with me on the rules for parables? Because this is how we're going to start to do this, this Bible study as we go forward. We're going to find what's weird. We're going to make sure that we, when it's not given to us to know exactly what the answer is, retreat back to what we already know in Scripture. And then we're going to look for Jesus. Because that's sort of the point of this. You already know how to farm, and farming has gotten better since this. You should not look for farming advice from this parable. I just You shouldn't. It's awful. You might be able to find something out about the kingdom of God, though. Are you kind of with me here? I say this because the only other option for this is something that the Reformed churches would do. They would say that when Jesus says, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, Jesus wants people to go to hell. Look, he's intentionally confusing people. Look how he wants them to go to hell. What does scripture say about this? He says he has no desire in the death of even the wicked. In uh, Ezekiel 33, uh, Luke, Luke something, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that I would gather you in as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. I think that's in the hypocrite chapter in Matthew 23 as well. Um, when, we, when we go against scripture because we're having trouble understanding this, just ask, who's smarter, God or you? If you're smarter than God, tell him how his story ought to work. If God is smarter than you, just take a step back and ask what's going on. Are you kind of with me here? All right. So, this is catechetical in nature. What's catechesis? What's catechism? It's teaching. Um, in particular, it's, it's like a call and response kind of teaching. It's a question and answer kind of teaching. And so for our, our catechism, it's a whole bunch of questions. And so I can say, what is the first commandment? And you can say, you shall have no other gods. And I can say, what does this mean? And you can say, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. See, it's not just teaching, but it's a call and response. And the joy about catechesis is that the more you go back to it, the more there is to know. And so that's a real good understanding of the first commandment. But can I teach you more than just that by going back to it and diving a little bit deeper? Yeah. The joy about the parable is that it's given for the people who already believe so that they can actually start to exercise their faith, so that they can actually start to go deeper in their understanding. This is not the introduction. This is not high school literature. Um, or excuse me, this is not kindergarten. This is college level. I mean, honestly, this is, this is for people who have already gone through the basics. So when we 
grab hold of parables because they're, they're stories about sheep and we say, kids like sheep, let's give them this. Um, I'm not saying don't, but I'm saying if you haven't already given them a foundation, how is it that you would expect them to come to the right conclusions on these things? The disciples themselves had to have it explained to them. So when we do parables, understand that they're stories, but they're not kid stories. They're grown-up stories. Are you kind of with me here? The joy about this is that it lets you actually chew on it. If I just tell you the bullet point, you can go home. If you actually do want to reflect on this and grow in faith, a parable is wonderful. This is what makes the one-year lectionary such a joy to us. Um, and so this, uh, this coming Sunday, we get to preach on the parable of the dishonest manager, the unrighteous manager, um, which is the same text that we preached on last time this year, which is the same text we preached on the time before that this year. And by going back to it over and over and over again, the well hasn't run dry yet. Like the same theme doesn't merge, but we learn a little bit more each time. Are you kind of with me here? Questions? There's some limitations in parables then. We should talk about some dangers even that come with it. Jesus, right out of his own mouth, says, Hearing you may not understand. That's a danger, a, a, a warning that goes along with parables. You might hear the parable and not understand it. In other words, apart from the true faith, you don't get the story right. You make it about yourself. You make it about something other than God. And so, if I don't have the right faith, um, I can, for example, take this parable, the parable of the sower, and I can say, well, I know what the problem is right here. The guy is sowing seed poorly. What we need to do is cultivate the ground. We need to make sure there's nothing but good soil. Because then, there won't be any problems. So how can I get rid of all the rocks, and how can I get rid of all the, the birds, and how can I get rid of all the, the sun? What's the problem? Jesus couldn't avoid the devil, can you? How's that going to go? How can I make Jesus' job easier for him? Because he, I don't think he can do it on his own. That's going to go bad. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Is the purpose of a parable to teach about God and about Jesus? And if they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then why would they ever, ever understand? Wouldn't the parable by its very nature point it out that they would never understand? Right. That's just it. The parable, it's the obvious truth. It, it frustrates those outside of the faith. Exactly. And so when we want to start to teach, we start with the truth and then we give the parable. We don't start with the parable and try and work the truth in. Because otherwise you're just going to drive people up a wall. Or you're going to end up trying to make everybody the bad guy in the parable that you don't like. And so we can tell the Good Samaritan parable and no matter who tells it, the other political party is the bad guy. It's just a frustrating experience because we have not first understood who our God is. Start with who God is. Then start to deal with the parable, and it gets easier. There's another danger um, that we can run too far with them. We can't overanalyze parables. We can sort of get lost in one of the details and, again, lose sight of Jesus. 
And so I can say, look at the kinds of soil, what can I do to fix the soil? And I just get so, so wrapped up in the kinds of soil that I forget the fact that there is a Jesus who actually is willing to sow seed recklessly because he wants everyone saved. The reason why the seed ends up everywhere is because there's nobody that Jesus didn't die for. There's nobody that didn't want saved. Are you kind of with me on that? When we overanalyze it, we can sometimes get a little off track. So we need to keep our eye again on Jesus. See, our Sunday school answer is really helpful here. What's everything about? Jesus. I like that. It's simple. Um, <laughs> and finally, the other danger is once you think you got it figured out, you tend to move on from it. That's just how we work. And so once you think you understand the parable of the lost treasure, I think I got it figured out. I know who's the real guy selling everything. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to look at it anymore. The parable was given for a point. If God wanted you to have it, he would tell it to you. If he wanted you to chew on it, he would give it to you this way. Let's go Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Way in the back, Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by its time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The danger with parables is we can think we got it figured out, move on, and stop chewing on this stuff. And in doing so, we tend to get dull in mind. God gave us a parable so that we can go back to it time and time and time again. It's a well that will not run dry. And so one of the worst things we can do with a parable is say, I know who the sower is, I know what each seed means, and now I'm done with it. If he just wanted you to know a few points, he would have given you a few points. He gives you this so that you can actually reflect. You kind of with me here? Questions? No? No? All right, she understands it. Y'all are fine then. All right. So, these are our kind of rules for parables here. One, it's about Jesus. Two, don't contradict scripture. Three, understand that it will be at least a little bit weird, and that's going to help you start to unravel what it means. Four, keep chewing on it. What else did I miss? I don't know either. All right, let's see how Jesus did explaining his own parable then. Let's see how my rules stack up to what Jesus does as he explains the parable. Let's go back to Luke 8. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in the time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and in good and honest heart, and bear fruit with patience. Um, if we're going to do with this parable, let's start with what we already know, because that's how you do parable, right? You don't contradict the scriptures. What do we already know? What's the third commandment? 
Good. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear it and learn it. What do we know about the word? It is holy and it makes us holy. And so we ought to hear it and learn it. With me so far? All right. Um, how then are, are people brought to faith? Through the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible taught me that too. What is, what is synergism? That's not a Bible word, but it's a helpful word. What is synergy? Perfect. When multiple things work together to create a greater good. And so 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. 2 plus 2 equals 6. Eight. I mean, really, that's, that's what it is. In other words, if I was bringing in the groceries, I could do it in this speed. If you were bringing in the groceries, you could do it in this speed. But if we work together, we can actually do it even faster than if we just stacked our times. There, there's a, you know, the, the fire bucket, right? It goes faster that way. That's synergy. So, with God, do we help out? when we come to faith? Is it synergy? In a way, yes? Alright. Right. So like we helped God, he wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise, right? Oh, okay. Oh. Wait, who's doing that work then? Can we go to Ephesians 2? Because I want to st stick with my, my wheelhouse, which is scripture. Um, because otherwise, it, it's just, it gets confusing. Let's go Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. We just got done with Ephesians, but we're not done with Ephesians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, which were, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead. Do dead people help? What dead weight? That's my kid when he doesn't want to go to bed. Dead weight. He's not going to assist in this process at all. You were dead. Will you help? Dead people don't help. Dead people don't choose. Dead people don't do nothing. They're dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do we help with this? No. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, though. So will Christians do good works? Absolutely. But who's the one doing them? God working through us. And so my catechism then tells me, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened with his gift, sanctified and kept me in faith. In other words, there is no synergy when it comes to faith. If God doesn't work, I stay dead. If God works... 
I live and I start to do living things. Are you kind of with me on that? That's like basic Lutheran, I didn't choose Jesus, Jesus chose me theology. I can see where you're going with that. Um, yeah, because God actually does choose to use means as he works through us. Um, and so, in other words, God doesn't sort of zap people into faith. How does God want babies to be brought to faith? He actually does want to work through their parents who bring them to church. There, we are more effective in this world. Things are more effective, excuse me, when they go according to God's means. In other words, I was brought to faith. I was 19. I was baptized. Thanks be to God. It was a lot harder. There were a lot more obstacles. It was a lot much, much more of a struggle than if I would have just been taught the faith from my infancy and baptized when I was supposed to be. It would have gone smoother. It would have. God in his mercy saved even me. And he did it through means. But the proper means tend to work better. And this is why people have trouble with step-parents sometimes, right? It's, it's a God-given mean, but it's not the natural one. And so, that's something that needs to be addressed. I'm not saying it can't work, or that it shouldn't work. But I'm saying that you're going to have to deal with why it's not the first. And in the same way, God does choose to use means. When we start to interrupt that, things get a little rockier. You kind of with me here? Questions? So how are you brought to faith? Through the word, not through yourself. We know this. Let's start to deal with the parable of the word then. All right? Um, is it just that some soils are better than others? Like, you know, I understand why that person might be a Christian and that other person wouldn't be. That's a bad person and that's a good person. Like, I can take one look at you and know, you got too many rocks. You got too much baggage. Christianity's not really for you. Is that how we do this? What do you mean, no? Christianity's for good boys and girls, right? There is no such thing as good soil. We're all born sinners. We are, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us. Show me the good soil here. When we want to make this about us, we start to try and divide us into camps. All right, I know you got too many worldly cares, so you're over there. You got some devil in you. You're that bird. Uh, I'm the good soil. Um, all of us, every last one of us, wrestles with everything that Jesus explains here, right? The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. Those are our catechism answers. Where do you think our catechism came from? This book. We don't want to overwrite what we know so that we can try and make the parable work to what we're seeing in this world because the parable doesn't work the way the world ought to work because it's God working, not us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so when God works inside of the world, it tends to look weird, like a cross, which is weird. Like I know we're used to it, but understand how weird it is that your God died and then rose again from the dead. And because we splash water on you, you'll do the same. That's not what people come up with. It's not. People come up with child sacrifice. 
This is what we invent when we want to make up a religion. We'll, we'll pare back from child sacrifice given enough time to civilize ourselves. But ultimately, at the end of the day, religion that the people make comes down to, if I poke this button, will good things happen or bad things happen? If I give up something I love a lot, will whatever power there is give me something that I want even more? This is demonic. And it's not how God works. God gave his son for you that you would live. Are you kind of with me on this? So let's start with the path. Um, how are we doing on time? Oh, boy. <laughs> we'll start with the path to see how it goes. What are the seeds that fall on the path? Uh, what happens to those? Birds eat them. And what does this mean? Like, what's the Bible say? What's Jesus explain this to be? Good. So the seeds that fall upon the path, those are the ones where the devil comes along and he rips the word from them and carries it off. Um, my large catechism, kind of the big brother to the small one, um, Luther wrote, even though you know God's word perfectly and are already a master in all things, you are daily in the devil's kingdom. In other words, how do you avoid the devil? You can't. If we're only going to throw seed out, where there is no devil, there will be no seed. Where do you think the devil is on Sunday? Why would he be in church? Huh? To take the word away because he has everybody else. He don't got to worry about everybody not in church. They're under, you're either with God or against God. If you want to go deer hunting, you go to where the deer are, not to where the deer aren't. If you want to go Christian hunting, you go to where the Christians are, not to where the Christians aren't. The devil never skips church, ever. We have the word there, though, right? So uh, let's do 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. 1 Peter, way in the back there, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, Christians face what? We do. What's the answer? How do we deal with this then? Because if this is the case, if the devil comes along and takes the seed, there should be no Christians. This isn't just how do I throw the seed where there's no devil, or how do I chase away the... Let's go Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So we were in Ephesians, so it's like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's the answer? A safe answer around here. It's just, it usually is. You live in the domain of the devil, but you call yourselves in the kingdom of God. Where's the kingdom of God? It's wherever Jesus is. 
That's what John the Baptist is saying when Jesus is walking along and John's all like, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Because the kingdom of God isn't a cloud. It's where Jesus is. It's where the king is. Jesus is the king of kings. If he puts his foot down, he puts it down in his kingdom. What's the church? But the kingdom of God made present for you, here, now, in the domain of darkness, that you would be transferred into the kingdom of God. You kind of with me? So yeah, there's a real enemy. But the solution is what? It's God's word that brings faith. Uh, let's do the rocks. We've got some time to do the rocks. What happens to the seeds that fall among the rocks, according to Jesus? Good. The cares of the world choke out the seed. They received it with joy. They, they heard it. They loved it. But life gets in the way. And that's not just that we get busy. There's a, a, a theological term called enthusiasm. What's enthusiasm? Feeling. So if I'm enthusiastic, I care about it. I'm emotionally invested. Enthusiasm. Go ahead. They have no root. Good. They've got no root. And so if you're going by your feelings and you're having a great day, how hard is it for me to ruin your great day? I'm so good at ruining people's great days. People try to have them around me all the time, and I just sin a bunch, and it ruins it. If you're going only by your heart, there's no root, and it doesn't hold. So theologically, when we talk about enthusiasm, our Lutheran confessions, our Lutheran rule book talks about it a couple of ways. Um, it says, um, the enthusiasts, according to our formula of Concord, imagine God works without means. Without the hearing of God's word, without the use of the holy sacraments, draws people to himself and enlightens, justifies, and saves them. In other words, how do I know there's God when I can't feel him in my heart? I have the word and the sacraments. That's what these things are for. Because if I only want to measure by my heart, when I need Jesus the most, he will feel the farthest away because I feel like crap. Enthusiasm is of the devil. It, it, it's false doctrine and dangerous, not because it's bad to have feelings. God made you with feelings. Your feelings are good. But when you try and measure things by your feelings, that goes poorly. You miss out on a lot of things that are really important. And so when I put a brand new dish in front of my kids in dinner, um, and they take one look at it, and they say, I don't like this, their enthusiasm has blinded them to the fact that there's an awesome meal right there. Try it before you say you don't like it. <laughs> so for Christians then, how do I know that God would love me when I, no, I, I do nothing but ruin everything I touch? His word tells me that he died for me. How do I know that's actually for me, that I am holy and worthy of love when nobody around me loves me? Or at least I feel that. I, I'm baptized. I cross myself and I say, God has worked this love for me. And I can find it right here. This is where the root takes hold to endure hardship, suffering. And honestly, makes us start to thrive as Christians, even in the face of suffering. 
So Luther would write, we must be concerned not only about hearing, but also about learning and retaining God's word. Why are we here? Because it's just the most fun thing in the whole wide world to do on a Wednesday night? No. I'm okay with that. But because there are real questions and real problems and real enemies of, of, of faith, and we're trying to figure this stuff out so that we don't fall away. And so we wrestle with this stuff. And that's important. You know what one of the best answers you can give as a Christian is when somebody asks you a really hard question? I don't know. But maybe we can find out together. One of the worst answers you can do is make up your own. It's like watching little kids try and figure out where babies come from. It's just, it's not accurate, you guys. Um, It's cute, maybe, but it's it's not going to help anybody for anything. Um, When we study these things, we actually are confronted with them and, and fall into God's word instead of our own chance to understand it. And so I can ask real questions. Why do bad things happen to us? Where is God in the face of so much pain and suffering in this world? And I can actually go into his word and say, well, I know where God is in the face of suffering. He's bearing it for me on a cross. Why would God allow bad things to happen in this world? Well, because the only real alternative is to get rid of every last person causing the bad things and send them to hell. And my God doesn't want to do that. So he endures the pains himself for us on the cross. When we start to wrestle with God's word, we build up. If there's no word, are you ever going to grow? Not roots. You can, in, you can whip up an emotion. You actually can whip up enthusiasm really, really easy. It is not hard to make people feel a thing. You talk in a confident voice. You know how to build up your, your cadence and you build towards a, a point and you, you raise your voice at just the right point and people start to engage. And if you're really, really good at the thing, you put on just like a nice, um, encouraging soundtrack in the background. And this is why every single movie speech gives you those tinglys. And it's not actually all that impressive if you would have a three-year-old read it. But to the right atmosphere, to the right environment, You can manipulate people's emotions. And if you're trying to make them feel good for Jesus, I mean, great. But the problem is, there are enough things in this world to make us feel bad that we might not always be able to elicit that emotional response. I cannot make you feel on fire for Jesus in the worst day of your life. Nobody got Job to sing praise songs. But he did sing, I know that my Redeemer lives. The reason that we fall back into this stuff is because it actually does start to let us be real with the the stuff that's going on around us instead of just pretending it doesn't exist and we feel fine in the face of it because we don't feel fine. And that's okay. There's a God who deals with us when we don't feel fine. We don't need to feel fine our way into heaven. God brings us there. You kind of with me there? Questions or comments there? Tell me about the thorns. I don't know. Jesus, that's a safe answer. What are the thorns? The seeds that fall among the thorns. Right, all the things in the world that would push us away from the faith. Um, So the best thing in the whole wide world we could do is give away all our stuff, right? There's a Catholic order founded off of this. The Franciscan monks started by St. Francis of Assisi, actually took Jesus to heart when he said, sell everything and follow me. 
He was a, a wealthy son of a nobleman. Sold everything, tried to follow Jesus. You know what he became? Huh? A monk, but also a burden on society. Um, because here, here's the thing. Um, you know how to keep feeding him instead of him feeding other people? And he got a whole bunch of other people then to stop working and engaging in commerce and providing for their families, but to go out in the streets and beg. We talked about the danger of, of mammon earlier. But at the same time, you're not going to save yourself by giving away everything that you have. It's not just that Jesus loves poor people and hates rich people. He loves everyone. It's that stuff, stuff triggers that, triggers that idolatry in me to fear, love, and trust in that. All of us are going to wrestle with this. So how do we deal with it as Christians? Good. Perfect. We look to the giver, first of all, and recognize the stuff isn't bad because the God who gives it to you calls it good. We're taught to pray for our daily bread because God actually wants you to have it. The stuff isn't bad. It's what we do with it that's bad. So what we have to do then is check our guts. One of the ways that we do this, um, well, in this church we fast sometimes. This is what Lent is about. We just look at the stuff and we say, all right, is this really going to save me as much as I think it is? What would my life be like without it? What does that say about me? What does that say about God? You're not more holy by giving something up during Lent, by no means. You don't want to give up nothing during Lent? Don't give up nothing during Lent. But I would tell you, Jesus does say when you fast, not if you fast. Um, but when we fast, we do it in a way that puts us face to face with what the pleasures of this world are. So we can recognize these things aren't actually God. They won't actually save me. It's not bad. You with me here? Yeah. Questions? Comments? All right. Um, and last but not least, um, before we do anything else, um, of all the stuff that went wrong in the parable, is there anything wrong with the seed so far? When we make this about us, we try and cultivate the ground. And we lose sight of the fact there's nothing wrong with the seed at all. And Isaiah 55, 11. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God sends out his word, is it ever a bad word? A powerless word. It does what he needs it to do. This is why the sower sows so recklessly. Because he knows. God wants even the people in the kingdom of the devil to be saved. He wants even people with earthly cares to be saved. He wants people who are, are burdened by this life to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. And so he throws the seed out recklessly, even as sinners. God does not wait to try and find the good people and give it only to them. He gives it to absolutely everyone. And the miracle is, we're here. It worked. In all the grounds, there's something wrong. But the seed has always been good. But the thing is, the word makes saints of us all. The word takes that which is dead and makes it alive. It takes that which is evil and it makes it good. Our confessions say wherever God's word is taught, preached, heard, read, or meditated upon, then the person, day, and work are sanctified, made holy. This is not because of the outward work, 
but because of the word which makes saints of us all. God's word does this thing. It makes us good. It makes us holy, even us sinners. You kind of with me on this? Questions on this stuff? Awesome. That's a good one. So when does the Holy Spirit enter into this thing? Because you need the Holy Spirit to believe. Well, the Holy Spirit binds himself to means. So like the Holy Spirit doesn't just sort of like float around and zap people and like, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. Um, the Holy Spirit binds himself to word and sacrament. And so here, word. So the Holy Spirit is bound in the seed. It's, it's the word. And so when we say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, we say that that word isn't just like letters on a page, but it's a powerful thing. It's God working through the Holy Spirit in the word which is how we deal with God today, which is really helpful. Because if you can't find God in this church through the Holy Spirit, it seems like by and large, at best, we're putting on a weird play once a week. We're like, we got funny costumes and we sing weird songs, but like what's happening? Um, but if the Holy Spirit is actually present and active in worship, when we can say where this word of God is read up there, where the sermon is preached, well, that's the Holy Spirit at work. Even through my sinful, funny looking pastor, <laughs> that sacrament we receive, the bread and the wine, it actually is Jesus because the Holy Spirit is present working through that. Um, this is what makes the for you and the for you matters. The for you is everything. There's a difference between a cookie and a cookie for you. Um, and so when, when we find the Holy Spirit bound to the means, it becomes a simpler thing. Otherwise, you kind of just got to feel around for him and hope you get him, but you'll never actually know. And that's that enthusiasm again. I got to know I have the Holy Spirit. And if I try and measure it by my behavior, that goes poorly. And if I try and measure it by how I feel, like some days that goes great and some days that goes real poorly. Um, but if I measure it by where he's actually promised to be found, in word and in sacrament, then I can actually know I got him. And that's why the sower doesn't have to worry about where he's throwing the seed. Because the Holy Spirit converts. And so he can toss the seed out to sinners and it'll work. And who's the sower? Jesus. Okay. Um, so, okay. It's going to get a little complicated, but sure, we can try it. Um, starting at Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 4. A great crowd had gathered, and the people from town came to hear Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So he said to them a parable, a sower. Um, That's what I'm saying. So I would say, because here's the thing. Um, when you hear the word of God, is it the third person of the Trinity bringing you the second person of the Trinity? Yes. Which is why when you do it one or the other, it gets weird. And so to, to hear the word of God, Jesus himself calls himself the word of God. In the beginning was the word. But the word is brought by the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit's job is to bring Jesus to you. And so there's going to be places where I can't just put one person or the other. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm trying to. Um, and so a sower, um, here I'm going to say Jesus went out to sow his seed. So by the seed being the Holy Spirit bringing the second person of the Trinity. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air, which is the devil, attacked and devoured it. Some fell upon the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things. And he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And uh, the hearing is again the Holy Spirit. 
the the word of God. Yeah. The word of God brought through the Holy Spirit. So um, the, the, the Holy Spirit brings you Jesus. So Jesus went out to sow himself. God through the use of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he went out to sow himself. And as he sowed himself, some of it fell against the devil. Some of it fell in all the busy streets of America and was trampled down. And a lot of other really rough politicians came out and devoured it. I like it. Some of it fell on really tough places in life. And as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because... I don't like that last part. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's what sanctification looks like. Um, it, it the the good ground. Good. Perfect. Magnificent. That's magnificent. That's beautiful. And so that's why you can find the church existing where the church should not exist. For some reason, the church thrives under persecution. That's weird. Um, for some reason, the church thrives where God um, is confronted with the devil every single Sunday. And yet here we are. If the, the good ground is the Holy Spirit at work, then all of a sudden, yeah, good things come. Eight? Where's eight? I'm looking at the wrong verse. Read eight, eight. Eight, eight? And some fell on good soil? Right. And it grew and yielded a hundredfold. So others fell, you're saying, on Christ or whatever? On Christ, the solid rock. And through Christ, yielded a hundredfold. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, the results. Christ through them yielded a hundredfold. I like Matthew's in this, uh, or Luke's actually in this. Matthew says, you know, some yielded 10, some 50, some 100. And we again get off track and say, well, who yields the most? How do we? No, don't do that. Just it, where God works good, good comes. Cool. Anybody else? Questions, comments, sir? Yeah. Yeah? Are we done? No? Yes. Yes? <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I messed up. I forgot. Are the parables literal? We talked about that and then we said, hold off. Is there one sower who brings faith to people? Um, you have the microphone. Yeah. Can the I parables are literal. The Can parables, no, the... not right now. The parables are literal because we actually do in them find our God at work. And so we're not saying then when you read the scriptures, <laughs> stay further away from it or keep them at arm's length because they're, they're sort of true. We're saying this is the kingdom of God being played out. And so you can't actually take it literally. 
you can't actually wrestle with it as if it's really God at work. Um, so yes, there is a sower. And yes, there is such a thing as a seed. When we deal with parables, we're going to deal with them literally. Because there actually is a God doing these things. Cool? Yeah. Awesome. All right, thank you very much for your time. <laughs>